You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4. I want to share a message that's going to equip us as a church family. This is going to be a very practical message this morning for us to learn as a, as a church family how to discern the Spirit of God. We have all these influences vying for our attention and honestly um, de- desiring with an agenda to influence us, to make us think a certain way, to act a certain way. Whether you're aware of it or not, they're there. Those influences are there. And, and we need to be a discerning people. We need to be thoughtful. In fact, I gave that warning to you all last week. Outside of the context of 1 John, I felt like there was brewing in my heart a warning for our church family to be a watching people. Watchful, eyes wide open, discerning, alert. For us to be watching, for us to be waiting, and for us to be found ready. You know, the waiting is a call for us to depend on the Lord for his strength. In this day and age, in the, the, the American West that, that believes in individual um, just self-will and um, you know, self-empowerment, the gospel turns that on, on head and says is we, we need to die to ourselves and depend on the Lord. We need to learn to surrender to his power, his will, his way. That's the waiting. And, and if, if we are watching, if we are waiting, we will be found ready ready for whatever comes our way. Obviously, uh, the Lord's soon return, but e- even in anticipation of that, whatever trials, tribulations come our way, we'll be found ready. Not everyone will be found ready. That's the sobering reality. Uh, and that's, I believe, why in God's kindness and his goodness, he would give us a warning. He would say, church, be watching, be waiting. Please be found ready. I've, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. And so please be found ready. I'm looking for a people who will be found devotedly uh, waiting for me, watching and waiting, ready for me. So we need to be a discerning people. So Lord in his goodness would just kind of keep us in in that track this morning in 1 John chapter four. I want us to learn how to discern the spirit of God. If you're taking notes, that can be the title for this morning. Discerning the spirit of God. How do we discern all the influences of our day? Um, that word spirit in the Greek is the, is the Greek word pneuma. And pneuma can be translated wind, it could be translated breath. But it's the idea of this kind of unseen reality that influences like wind or that can be discerned with life carrying uh, realities like breath. And so the, the idea of the spirit both of God and the spirits of, of the age. The word, the phrase that John's gonna use here in 1 John is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there are other spirits. There are other winds of influence blowing in every generation, blowing on, on the earth. And we need to be a discerning people. Some discernment will take a little bit more thoughtfulness. There's other discernment that the Lord is gonna give us just a common sense um, uh, wisdom to discern as, as a people of God. This, this should just be super flat out easy for us to discern. This is not of God, this is of God. Um, so in a prior life, before I was a pastor, I was a nuclear engineer and I worked with a group of engineers out in Seattle, Washington. 
uh, where we were a group of engineers entrusted with carrying radioactive material from a Navy uh, shipyard near Seattle, out into the ocean, up the Columbia River to what's called the Hanford site in eastern Washington. And so that whole process, we engineered this. Um, I didn't personally, but this group of engineers did. I was just part of the team, reporting for duty. Um, but in anticipation of one of these shipments, these shipments would be a thousand ton packages, massive packages. These, these were former reactor, or these were the reactor compartments from former nuclear reactors on Navy submarines. And so uh, we would be shipping these packages out into the ocean with sensitive material, you know, precious cargo. Um, and so for weeks, in anticipation of one, of one of our shipments, we would be analyzing the weather. We would be uh, forecasting with all these models and um, calculations to try to, to try to discern whether or not it was gonna be safe for us to ship these packages out into the open ocean and up the Columbia River to not put anything at jeopardy, in, in jeopardy. Um, and so we would do that. For about two weeks prior to it, we would be analyzing every, every last uh, detail of data that we could get our fingers on and, our, and get our heads wrapped around. We would be analyzing to say either yay or nay, we can ship on shipment date. And more, more often than not, we would say nay uh, because the risk would be there. And so then we would wait for the, the optimal window of time Take that, that took that sort of painstaking, I got to go on two of these trips out into the ocean open. It was, it was a fun adventure for sure. Um, but there is go, there's gonna be certain realities of walking out this faith in Jesus Christ that's gonna take some just gritty analysis and thoughtfulness where we actually need to, to really pour over scripture and find ourselves on our knees and submit ourselves in community to say, is this of God or is this not? There's gonna be other stuff that, honestly, we don't even need to sit and analyze it. We don't need to pour over it. We just need to discard it. We need to quickly discard it as evil, as nothing other than evil. Growing up, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, for some reason, they made all the kids play youth sports right next to a sugar bee plant. And so we played both soccer and football next to this sugar bee plant. And if you know anything about sugar, processing sugar, it stinks. I think it has something to do with the biological material that's left over uh, as it's rotting there or something. It smells like rotten eggs. And so depending on the direction of the wind would be a matter of, of everything for, for whether or not it was gonna be a fun morning or not. Uh, so if it, was, if it was a wind out of the north, you were, you were in for a rough morning of just smelling rotten eggs all morning long. And so that takes no discernment. It just stinks. There are certain things in our age and happening on the earth that we can just say it stinks. That just, it just stinks. We can just say that's not of God. You don't have to pour over. You don't have to analyze it. It doesn't take a lot of thoughtfulness. We just say, we just discard it. That's evil. And so there's both and. And so I want us to be a thoughtful people. I want us to be a discerning people. Um, we are not at odds as a faith-filled people, zealously, passionately devoted to the ways of Jesus. We are not opposed to thoughtfulness, uh, using our minds. You know, Paul's instructions to Timothy is guard your doctrine and your life closely. So doctrine and life are really inseparable. Oftentimes we, we put them at odds. We got these intellectual people, these doctrinally minded people, and sometimes they're the most self-righteous people, you know, religiously 
disconnected from the relevant aspects of life. And we have the real practical people, the nitty gritty, uh, you know, practical minded people that have a kind of a disdain for being thoughtful and doctrinally minded. I'll tell you that our doctrine is revealed in the stuff of real life. So really what we believe, we can say we believe something all day long, but it's not until Monday morning does what we believe really become manifest, really become demonstrated. And in the same token, we can, we can say we have a disdain for, for doctrine or using our minds, but we will be duped if we're not, if we're not humble, if we're not soberly aware of the, the tactics of the enemy and the, the, the wily ways of the, the deceiver himself. He is the deceiver, right? And so we need to be thoughtful. So we need to guard both our doctrine and our life and allow them to be one as they're, they're meant to be. They're meant to be one. That what we believe is truly what's fleshed out and demonstrated uh, in our day-to-day life. So let's look at First, first John but we're going to look at actually the verse prior just because it really does set up the context. We read this last time we were here uh, in 1 John. But it sets up the context as to what we're equipped with. It's the spirit himself. He's a person. The spirit of God is a person. As we devote ourselves to Jesus as Savior, place our faith and our confidence in his soul sacrifice for our sin, Spirit of God himself comes to live inside of us, dwell inside of us. It's, it's the good news of God. It says verse 24, so 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So the pneuma, capital S spirit, The pneuma of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God lives in us as followers of Jesus. That's good news. This is what he says in chapter four then. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every pneuma, every wind, every influence. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the pneuma of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God, the influence of God, the breath of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And John said this 2,000 years ago, so how, how much more is it true today that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work on the earth? Verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If we will uh, be persistent in keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we know how this whole thing will end up. We will be victorious in Christ. The victory is in him. Verse five, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Verse six, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So let us be discerning. Let's pray over God's word and allow it to... Lord, invite the Lord to come and do what only he can do. Lord, we welcome you in this place. 
We fixed our eyes on you in worship, exalting you to your rightful place. You are the head of the church, high and exalted, glorified. There's none like you. So we need you right now. God, allow your word to, to be made alive to us, to bring revelation that, that builds us up as your church, that edifies us, that equips us for the days in which we live. God, we want to be a watchful people, a waiting people. We want to be found ready in these days. So help us by the spirit of God in your mighty name, amen. So I believe that there are there are three, really three tests here in 1 John chapter four that John gives us to help us discern between the influences of God versus the influences of the world. The spirit of God, the person of God, and the influences of our age. There's three tests. The first test is, does this spirit confess Jesus as Lord? That Jesus is both God and man. Does this spirit boldly confess that? That's the first one, right? In verse four there. Every spirit that, verse two, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse three, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verses two and three. That's the first test. Does this spirit confess Jesus as the God man? As the one who is both fully God and fully man? The second test is this. It's found in verse five. They are from the world, these influences, he's talking about these, these ones who carry the spirit of the Antichrist out throughout the world, either knowingly or unknowingly. They speak from the world and the world listens to them. So is the world flocking to this, this message, this influence, this wind of the age? That's the second test, is the world flocking to it? And the last test is found in verse six. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. It's not listening to Drew. It's listening, listening to the apostles, the apostles' teachings. So it's not just a person, a man or woman of God saying, hey, listen to me, listen to me. You have to listen to me, all you followers. No, it's listening to the apostolic teachings and having the standard of scripture be the, the, the standard, the benchmark. So the third test is the teaching of the apostles. Is it revered? Is it upheld? Is it, is it seen as sacred and revered in that way? So let's, let's break these tests down. That first one, of which is the most important test, is does the spirit confess that Jesus is the God-man? Is he fully God and fully man? Everything hinges on this. And if there's nothing more that you can remember regarding this test of, you know, whether the spirit confesses Jesus as the God-man, it's this. Everything in regards to the saving power of God hinges on the reality of the God-man Jesus himself. So he is our object of faith. Everything hinges on this reality that God was both fully, God, I mean, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, which is a mystery to our minds. And it's that, that message that's foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us, it's the power of God for salvation. It's everything. Everything hinges on this, on this reality that within Jesus, humanity could be presented before before God, that there could be a substitute on our behalf 
You see, there have been many martyrs, there have been many sacrificial deaths, there have been many heroes, but nobody could stand before God as a substitute, as a representative of all humanity, unless he was different, unless he was unique, and that was this second Adam, this Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who was fully man. He he represents all of humanity because he was a different type of human. He was sinless in every way. That's what we're really ushering ourselves into in this Christmas season, through the the celebration of the incarnation, this Advent season. It's it's God taking on flesh, amen? He's fully man, but he's also fully God. He's fully divine. He didn't, he didn't empty himself of his divinity, but as God, he came and he took on flesh, taking on the form of a servant. That is the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he is now the object, the center of our faith, the center of our worship. So any spirit that confesses anything other than, than that is not of God, and we can quickly discard it. It's got the waft of stinky sugar beets to it. If it does not confess Jesus as Lord, God coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And this is important for us to discern very quickly what heresy is. You know, and so there are, there are many movements throughout the earth, obviously the, the Mormons, Jehovah Witness, the, uh, the Muslims, who say something other than that about Jesus. They either say that he was just a prophet or that he was a lesser God. And both are heresies. Those are, those, are, those are things that are not of the spirit of God. They stink and we set them aside quickly. They're not of God. They're not of the spirit of God, the pneuma, the influence of God. So we want to submit ourselves to the influence of God and be immersed constantly in the mystery of heaven that was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a mystery. And you'll never, never fully comprehend it. But honestly, on a calendar year, we, we submit ourselves to the rhythm of immersing ourselves in the mystery of the good news. The mystery that God would humble himself to take on flesh, as we just sang in that beautiful song, King of Kings. The one who is full of glory, all glory at his disposal, came and found himself in a cradle in the dirt. And it's, it's despised by much of the world. It's, it's foolishness to the wise. But for us that are being saved, it's everything. It's what we cling to. That is the object of our faith and allow it to be the the source of your faith. Jesus himself, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Amen? Everything hinges on. But what else is at stake in discerning? This this first test, that is, does his spirit confess the God-man? Because there is like, like I said, there is just like good analysis of doctrine of which we can then quickly discard heresy, but there is also the implications of what we subtly believe that we begin to realize comes to be made manifest in our day-to-day life. And I wanna speak to that for a moment. We need to be ones who regularly confess that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. There's none like him. He is the focal point of our faith and our life now in the Lord. Actually, John Owen, the great Puritan, and there have been many great minds and worshipers and lovers of Jesus who've gone before us, 
that have expounded greatly on the mysteries of the God-man Jesus Christ. But John Owen said that this faith in the person of Christ is the spring and the fountain of our spiritual life. We live by faith in the Son of God. So this is not a secondary issue or side issue. This is premier. This is the primary issue. The exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So I tell you, if you're beginning to struggle with doubts or unbelief, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't get introspective. Don't begin to analyze internally. You'll get really depressed. You turn your eyes to Jesus. You look to him. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And as you look to him, your faith comes alive because he is the, the source of your faith. So he, he is our, he's our focal point. I, th- I feel like there are other things, though, that um, are at stake when it comes to discerning whether a spirit is confessing Jesus is the God-man. First is this, uh, Jesus came to save a new humanity. This is called the miracle of the born-again new creation experience that's available for everybody, to be born again. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And any time we begin to falter in our belief that Jesus is the God-man, he's both fully God and fully man. The root of it is a, a, a shifting in our belief regarding his ability to save and transform a new humanity. That's what Jesus came to, to initiate, was the creation of a, of a new human race, a new humanity, a, a saved and redeemed people of all nations coming to, to him to serve him, to to worship him. And so any influence in your life that begins to attack the realities of a born again, new creation experience, you can can discern it as not of God. As you see John here, the apostle John, he was contending with this sort of um, error in the church. There were certain teachers arising saying that this faith now in God, this faith in Christ, was something just reserved for the life to come, something uh, reserved just for the eternity to come. They were over-spiritualizing the realities of the goodness of God. But Jesus came to do more than just uh, change your eternal destiny. That's a huge deal, like the matters of heaven and hell. It's everything. It really is very, very important. It's crucial. But Jesus did come to redeem a humanity, to allow us to be born again. The Spirit of God would would come and live inside of us, allowing us to consider the old person dead and us now alive to new life in Christ, to be a new creation, transformed by the Spirit of God. That is our inheritance as children of God. So any teaching that would draw you away from that is error. It's not of God. Any teaching that would lower your faith to to grab a hold of something, a standard lower than that, is not of God. Second is, is like it, but a little different. It's that Jesus comes to save the salvation of the whole person. The whole person. Not just our spiritual, uh, just not our spirit man, reserved for eternity, but mind, your will, your emotions. 
The Greek word is sozo, the saving of our entire selves. Jesus came to save our whole person and redeem us, to heal our bodies. That's why we believe as New Testament Christians in the sufficiency of Calvary to bring healing, to unleash healing in the church and in this world. It's because Jesus came to save the whole person. And we, we look towards this, this day to come where we will actually be given new bodies because we're not just these ethereal um, spirit things, spirit beings, but there, there's a redeeming of a humanity that has a whole person to it, a mind, a will, an emotions, a physical body. And Jesus came to save the whole person. A third, Jesus is the answer for our pain and our suffering. There are influences that, that try to theorize the work of Christ to be something that's irrelevant to the here and now and irrelevant to this world. This is so much of what John was contending against and opposing. A, a, a faith that becomes philosophy for the age to come and irrelevant to the here and now. But I believe within Christianity, we have the, the most beautiful reconciliation of the problem of suffering that we all, we all are um, subject to in this world. We look around and we're all subject to tragedy and crisis and pain and sickness and, and difficulty. And within Christianity and only within Christianity do we see an, a sufficient answer. We see an answer that came from God himself to come and take that pain and that suffering upon himself, to experience it, to pay the price for that pain and that suffering, to, to be familiar with that pain and that suffering, and to say, I'm going to provide you a way out of the pain and the suffering in the age to come. It's only in Jesus do we, do we see that sufficient answer. As we experience pain and suffering, we can actually experience a nearness to the Lord, and I have been a witness to that in my own life. In times of great tragedy, in times of, of great crisis, I've experienced a nearness of God that I, I believe only comes because of the finished work of, of uh, Christ on the cross. Because of the, the pain and the suffering that he experienced, he comes and ministers to a people that experience all sorts of horrific pain and suffering in this world. So all of that is at stake when it comes to confessing Jesus as Lord. You would say, oh, Drew, you're, you're, you're analyzing it too much. I would say, I'm not. These spirits are at work amongst humanity. There are these, these winds of the age trying to influence your thoughts, trying to influence the way you think and the way you perceive God. And so the answer is for us to receive revelation of what God is like, and we see that in the person of Jesus. That's the answer. There is an influence in our age and in every age. It's called the spirit of the Antichrist that John refers to here. The spirits, these spirits that are opposed to Christ, Antichrist, they are opposed to the Lord. And they do it through subtle lies, subtle errors. I believe there's a, there's a real subtle influence of our age currently. It even exists within the church, streams within the church that tells us that we should base our faith on our experiences rather than, than on the word of God, rather than this being the standard, to base your faith on your experience. 
I would say that's not the spirit of God. The standard is the work of Christ. So that, that, that is in regards to the born again transformative experience that's only available in Christ. It's in regards to the saving of the whole person, mind, will, and emotions being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. And it's in relation to experiencing the nearness of the Lord in the midst of our own pain and our suffering. So that was the first test. I know I'm, I'm going through a lot here this morning, but I believe the Lord wants to equip us as a church family. Are you guys tracking with me? It's the first test. Does this spirit confess Jesus as God? The second test was, does the world flock to it? Does the world flock to it? Now, just because the world is flocking to a message or to an influence doesn't mean it's outright not of God. So let me be clear. But we should be a little wary if the crowds never dissipate. Because the crowds sure flock to Jesus. And obviously he was, we just established that he is, he is God. But it wasn't for long that the, the crowds continued to flock to Jesus. We quickly see within the story, the gospel stories, that there was this sifting of fans to followers. There was a difference between goats and sheeps and so much of this age is a separation of those very things. And in the age to come, we'll see the, the separating from the wheat and the chaff. That's why John gives us this sort of teaching is because there is a real discernment needed for us to follow Jesus, for it to go beyond a one-time profession or confession or experience to an actual lifelong uh, lifelong uh, path of journey of following Jesus. It's one thing to profess him with our mouth once. It's another thing to profess him with our mouth and profess him with our life every day after. And that's the difference between a fan and a follower. So does the world flock to it? You know, a gospel that only speaks of what Christ did but not what he calls us to is not the full message. It's part of the message. We definitely point, we just established that we point people to the finished work of Christ, to his sufficiency, his goodness. It always has to mean something then for our Mondays. It has to mean something for our lives. There has to be a, a, a call to this new, now born again life following Christ. Now we are disciples of him. We don't just pick and choose what we want. Oh, we like the idea of a savior coming and dealing with my eternal destiny, but I don't want anything more than that. That's not the full message. A gospel that dispenses the goodness of God without his worthiness is not the full message. A gospel that speaks of only certain attributes of Christ but neglects others is not the full message. We need a robust uh, understanding of the fullness of who God is. That's why Paul prayed that over the church in Ephesus, that they would come into the fullness of God. There's all these multifaceted realities of God that we, we find in the person of Christ. We find demonstrated through the person of Christ that all are needed. We can't just talk about the goodness of God. We have to talk about his, his justice. We can't just talk about his holiness. We have to talk about his love. We need to talk about his mercy. We need to talk about his sovereignty. 
These are all things that we need to immerse ourselves and it is the life now following Christ that is ours in him and it's such a privilege. That's now the journey, actually our eternal journey of knowing God. That's how Jesus defined our, our eternal destiny. He said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So, so buckle up, folks. Like This is our eternal destiny, is growing in the knowledge of God. Not just one aspect of it, not just one attribute, not just your pet attribute that you love and adore the most, but it's all of them. And yes, there's seasons of emphasis where the Lord reveals aspects of his attributes, aspects of his character and his nature, but, but they're all needed. It's not to, the, uh, it's not to the, the neglect of another. We need them all. Yet Jesus spoke often of the difference between fans and followers. Those that would profess a faith in him in a moment, but then turn away. In John chapter six, you see the crowd swelling, like crowds flocking to Jesus. Well, I mean, who wouldn't flock to him? He's got, he's got a golden corral buffet going on. He's got, he's healing the sick. He's got, you guys don't know what golden corral is. We don't have golden corral around here, do we? That's a buffet. Golden corral is a buffet. Not exactly a great buffet, but it's a buffet. So it's, you know, Jesus had a really good buffet Plus, he healed the sick. I mean, who wouldn't flock to that? But he was, he was quick to tell them what it meant, what it, what, it, what it will cost them. You've experienced much and experienced me as living bread and living water. That's what he came to, to bring to humanity, to be the refreshing of our souls and ultimately step into our eternal purposes in him. But there is a cost to following him in this narrow way. Like the world is gonna reject you. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy to walk, to follow after me. And then the crowd started to dissipate. Then the crowd started to wane. Then people are like, what? We have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And many turned away. Many actually disciples. So these are ones who said, hey, we're gonna be students of this rabbi. Like we love this guy. Man, you hear about this teaching? It's, oh, it's awesome. We're disciples. Check it out, John chapter six. Disciples turned away from Christ. Not the 12, but there were other disciples. Other ones who submitted themselves to the teaching of Rabbi Jesus. And, and then he says, you gotta drink, drink, drink my blood. And they turn away. So we should be wary if the crowds are flocking to it. If, if the message only becomes a popular message, we should be wary. We should be discerning and say, hey, I wonder if part of this is missing. I wonder if there's an emphasis being skipped over. I wonder if there's something that's gone off kilter, that's imbalanced. Because it's not the way of true obedience as children of God. There's a difference between fans and followers. When Tana and I lived out in Washington, um, you know, 14, 15 years ago now, uh, we started just hosting young adults in our home. We, home, we didn't, uh, didn't have kids at the time. And uh, so we just started hosting young adults in our home, study the word together, pray, and um, just make friends and have community. We loved it. It was such a privilege and honor. 
And the Lord brought so many hungry young adults into our home. The Northwest of the United States is, is a region that's just so unchurched and therefore very lonely, a lot of depression. Um, plus we lived in a military town, so there's just a lot, of, um, a lot of brokenness that the Lord came and ministered to people so beautifully. But I just wanna share a story, a quick story of two individuals and how starkly different their response was to the gospel. One individual, his name was Caden, and Caden, uh, I prayed with him to, to surrender his life to Christ, and it was a beautiful moment on our knees before the Lord, seeing him surrender himself to the Lord, recognizing that there's nothing he can do to save himself, but it's only by the finished work of Christ. And I began to walk with him, and we'd have him in our home often. He joined this community of young adults, and there was a moment just a few weeks after he confessed Jesus as Lord that, that, that Caden really came to a crossroads of realizing what, it, what this was gonna mean. There's some things he was gonna have to give up. And, uh, and that's for all of us. Like there's a point where we say yes to Jesus and we hit a crossroads and we're like, that's a little close like to what, just what I love and what I enjoy, like the pleasures that I've grown accustomed to. And, and you could see it, you could see, see the wheels turning, you could see it in his eyes. Caden didn't know if he wanted to continue on. And in fact, the night that we had that conversation in our, in our little condo, uh, he left, and I was so disheartened. I felt like for sure Caden was gonna walk away from the Lord. He just wasn't wanting to make that, uh, surrender that, that thing to the Lord, that, that kind of pet sin of his life. And I was kind of discouraged, both me and my wife, we prayed for him and continued to encourage him. Well, the following week, he came back to our house early before our group gathering was gonna happen, and, he had a smile on his face and he said, Drew, I'm ready to surrender that. I'm ready to surrender this to the Lord. And I don't, I don't, want, I don't want it in my life. I wanna follow Jesus. And it was a beautiful turning point in his life. I saw him go on this trajectory of following Jesus. So like the, for him, that upgrade of faith from just what comes to the goodness of the Lord to I'm going to count the cost and follow Jesus that happened in his life. Well, there's another individual, his name is Tony. And Tony was one who, you know, he wore his emotions on his sleeves and uh, you always knew what he was thinking because he was quick to, quick to speak. Uh, maybe he would have been like a Peter, you know, he's just so, and he honestly, he was so charismatic in terms of his personality. And in a similar way, I found myself on my knees with Tony, seeing him confess uh, Jesus Lord, surrendering himself as he really wrestled through some difficult, difficult things. And he made a loud, bold proclamations in the days following, honestly, to his wife and to me, bold proclamations of how he's gonna change his life, how his life is gonna be changed in Christ and no turning back. And with him, there was almost no doubt in my mind that that would be the trajectory of Tony's life. Well, within months and then within years, I slowly watched Tony take another path. It was the, really the path of least resistance it was the path of complete affirmation of whatever sin he wanted to have that day would be his. And for, in some way, he cloaked it in Christian garb. He cloaked it in Christian language, saying that I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I watched him, honestly, abandon his family, abandon his kids, go off into the world, still to this day, living however he wants in complete rebellion to God, but yet putting Christ's name on it. That's why I say there's, 
We can confess things all day long, but what matters is like when the rubber meets the road and Monday morning comes around, what is it that we truly believe? And if the world is just flocking to a message and a message is too easy and it's irrelevant to Monday, then I would say we should have pause for concern. We should have, uh, we, should, we should pause and say, this is an error, this is a spirit of error, this is wrong. What was the third test? The third test was this, is the teaching of the apostles revered. Is the, is the teaching of the apostles upheld as, as sacred? There will be false spirits that tempt, believer, tempt believers to throw out God's word. Obviously, this was of great contention for John here in this letter because he was in this, this age where you know, the teachings of the apostles and all these other teachings that were also distributed throughout the early church, they were trying to be discerned. And, and the, the opinion of the early church from the get-go was the apostles' teachings were uh, supreme. The, the teachings of those that were actually with the resurrected Christ, that were with him for three and a half years and then actually saw him as the resurrected Christ, their teachings stood apart. And so that's why he's saying there are some that just don't listen to us as apostles. And I'll tell you, they have another agenda. And so there are movements, even under the, the, the broad umbrella of Christianity, that, that would pick and cherry pick and pick and choose and throw out aspects of the New Testament. And I'll tell you, that's error. It's error for us to pick and choose and to say, oh, we only like the teachings of Paul or we're gonna throw out the gospels or that, that's most often what happens is people will cling to the teachings of Paul, they'll throw out the teachings of James and Hebrews and teachings of John even. They'll pick and choose pa passages they want. It's happening. There are others that just try to retool scripture to make it say what they want it to say. And I would say in, in our age, we should be heightened. Like well, there should be an alertness in our spirits, because of the arrogance of our age, you know, every generation has a certain arrogance that says, oh, we've arrived at a certain intellectual level as we look back over history. And it props itself up as more enlightened. But I'll tell you, we're not more enlightened than the, the apostles, the ones who walked with Christ, the ones who penned the New Testament, the ones who were inspired by the Spirit of God to capture the goodness of the Lord, the revelation of God, through scripture. And I would say all the more in, in this, this age where there's such an arrogance that is um, so prevalent. There are also some just winds of our time, influence, pneumas of our time that are simply trying to downplay what scripture has to say. But I'm saying this is this is the bread and butter of our life as New Testament believers, the word of God. Look at Acts chapter two. What did the early church devote themselves to? It's pretty simple. It wasn't all these fancy programs and, and building initiatives. It, it was devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. These are the things that they devoted themselves. Check out Acts chapter two, verse 42 through 48. This is what they devoted themselves. It was like a very simple community. What are we gonna be about? We're gonna be about reading the word, pouring over the apostles' teachings, seeing the fulfillment of Christ in the old covenant. 
We're gonna devote ourselves to prayer, hence the house of prayer. Like this is why we're devoting ourselves to the simple things because we're gonna be ready. We're gonna be ready. We're gonna be found to be a simple people. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward because we are gonna, we are gonna close. I was recently recalling, uh, I'm preparing to bring another one of my kids through a year of discipleship and this is in our household, just been a rite of passage as kids enter from, uh, into their 13th um, Thir- as they turn 13. And uh, my, my, oldest, my oldest daughter, Lucy, is uh, turning 12 here in a, just a couple weeks, so she's gonna be starting a year of discipleship. One of the books that we've uh, put on our kids' list for the year of discipleship is a book called The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun. And Brother Yun uh, is a, was a leader in the, the church in China. And the, and the Chinese church has experienced a tremendous move of God in our generation, a beautiful, beautiful revival. And you won't hear about it uh, in the media because most of it happens underground. It happens illegally in these, these gatherings, organically, uh, through these highly organized networks of, of house churches throughout China. In 1949, there's a million believers in China. Today, it's estimated there's over 100 million Christians in China. That's more than 10% now of that nation is Christian, which is wild in a society that is so staunchly atheistic, so militantly. I mean, um, there's a real cost to following Jesus there. Not just arrest, but also death. But Brother Yun, in his book, he talks about revival and the revival they've experienced there. But he says, if you want revival in the West, because people ask him, hey, what's the key to revival? You've experienced so many things in in the Chinese church. How do we experience revival in the West? He says, devote yourself again to the word of God. Devote yourself to the word of God. There they highly revere the word of God because it's illegal to have it. So they, they view it as so precious. And so I do wonder if in our day where we have, you know, the average household has dozens of Bibles and we have all these different translations and versions right on our fingertips. You know, I wonder if we've gotten a little spoiled. What if we poured over scripture, like some of these simpler communities, and we said, God, speak to us. You are our bread for life. You're our bread for today. Would you come and speak to us? Would we revere like the apostolic ways, the teachings of the apostles? Would we revere their word? So those are three tests. Is Jesus confessed as the God-man? Does the world flock to it? And is the teaching of the apostles revered? I do have encouragement for you. Just look at verse four. Little children, you are from God. That, you know, this is old John, John in his old age, speaking to the people he loves so much, little children. Sweet, innocent followers of Jesus. You are from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the end of this story. This is where this is headed. We will be victorious. We will overcome as we keep our eyes on Jesus, as we keep ourselves like little kids before the Lord, dependent on him, surrendered to him. Amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. 